Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of information, opinion, culture, and history about the African American community. On today's program, I'll have readings from the Boston Globe, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Annapolis, Maryland Capital Gazette newspaper, Harvard Review Magazine, the Morning Call newspaper of Allentown, Pennsylvania, Time Magazine, the New York Times, and I'm going to start with an article from the website Deadline.com. The title is, Viola Davis selected as one of the inaugural members of President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States. It was written by Ted Johnson and published September 26, 2023. Viola Davis has been selected as one of the inaugural members of the President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States. The council is being established to enhance dialogue between United States officials in the African diaspora, the community of African Americans, and African immigrants. It was announced by Vice President Kamala Harris during the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit last year. The council includes up to 12 members appointed by the Secretary of State and includes individuals from government, sports, creative industries, business, academia, social work, and faith-based activities. According to the White House, they will provide invaluable guidance to reinforce cultural, social, political, and economic ties between the United States and Africa and promote trade, investment, and educational exchanges between the United States and Africa. That was the article, Viola Davis selected as one of the inaugural members of President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States. It was written by Ted Johnson and published September 26, 2023, at the website Deadline.com. My next reading was published September 25, 2023, in the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff News. The title is, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff founder Joseph Carter Corbin paved the way for African American higher education in Arkansas. The University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, UAPB, currently celebrating its year-long sesquicentennial along with the local community, will celebrate Professor Joseph Carter Corbin Day on Wednesday, September 27, 2023. Corbin's awe-inspiring legacy of service, advocacy, and excellence continues to this day as the founder of Branch Normal College, now UAPB, and the father of higher education for African Americans in Arkansas. Professor Joseph Carter Corbin, our university's beloved founder, was a veritable Renaissance man with a classical education, whose larger-than-life presence and benevolent audacity to establish Branch Normal College during the Reconstruction era can still be felt today, said UAPB Chancellor Lawrence Alexander. It is felt through the transformative accomplishments of all our alumni past and present since 1873, along with our esteemed faculty, who have continued to embody the spirit, leadership, determination, and passion that so aptly describe Professor Corbin. The UAPB community is humbled by Professor Corbin's achievements and his monumental contributions to higher learning for African Americans both in Arkansas and the country. Professor Corbin, March 26, 1833 to January 9, 1911, was born in Chillicothe, Ohio, a town heavily steeped in racist segregation. 
The eldest son of former slaves William and Susan Corbin, Corbin's parents enrolled him in private schools due to the absence of public schools for African Americans in Chillicothe, where he excelled academically. In 1850, he enrolled in the Ohio University in Athens and holds the honorable distinction of being the third African American student to enroll there. He became the second African American to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree at the university, and then went on to earn a master's degree in 1856. Post graduation, Professor Corbin embarked on a public service career, serving as an elected trustee of the Cincinnati Colored School Board for two terms, and made impactful contributions as the co-publisher and editor of the Colored Citizen newspaper of Cincinnati for six years. Where he vigorously advocated for the education of enslaved and free African Americans as a means for advancing equal opportunities and much-needed societal change, Professor Corbin married Mary Jane Ward, with whom he fathered six children. Two of his children were surviving at the time of his death in 1911. In 1872, Professor Corbin relocated to Arkansas, working as a journalist for the Arkansas Daily Republican, and was appointed secretary of the 1872 Republican State Convention. He was also elected as the superintendent of public instruction and president of the board of trustees of the Arkansas Industrial University, utilizing both positions to further advance the educating of African American students. On April 25, 1873, State Senator John Middleton Clayton sponsored a legislative act establishing a college to educate African American students who would later become teachers in the state's African American schools. This historic legislation opened the door for Professor Corbin's establishment of Branch Normal College in Pine Bluff that same year. The Arkansas Industrial University Board of Trustees elected Professor Corbin as principal of Branch Normal College in July 1875. Branch Normal College's inaugural class consisted of seven students, but enrollment increased significantly, and by the end of the year, 75 to 80 students were enrolled. Professor Corbin's indelible contributions to the educational and societal advancement of African Americans and continuous positions of leadership within any organization he was involved in didn't cease with the establishment of Branch Normal College. He chose to remain with Pine Bluff and served as principal of Merrill High School and as president of the Colored Teachers Association from 1902 to 1903. In addition, Professor Corbin was also an accomplished Freemason and served as Grand Master within the Negro Grand Lodge of Arkansas and overseeing the temple's construction in Pine Bluff in 1903. When Professor Corbin passed on January 9, 1911, due to heart failure, he left an astounding and undisputed legacy of being one of the foremost and courageous advocates for African American advancement in all facets of American life, beginning with education. Which UAPB continues to honor to this day. That was the article. UAPB founder Joseph Carter Corbin paved the way for African American higher education in Arkansas. It was published September twenty fifth, twenty twenty three, and appeared at the UAPBnews.wordpress.com website. My next reading is an obituary. The title is. Bobby Schiffman, ninety-four, the Apollo Theater's renowned guiding force. This was published September nineteenth, twenty twenty-three, in the Boston Globe newspaper.
Bobby Schiffman, who guided the Apollo Theater in Harlem through the seismic cultural and musical changes of the 1960s and early 70s, cementing its place as a world-renowned showcase for black music and entertainment, died September 6th at his home in Boynton Beach, Florida. He was 94. His death was confirmed by his son, Howard. In 1961, Mr. Schiffman inherited the reins of the storied neoclassical Apollo Theater on West 125th Street in New York's Manhattan borough from his father, Frank Schiffman. The elder Schiffman, along with the financial partner, Leo Brecher, had taken over the theater, a former burlesque house that opened in 1914 as a whites-only establishment in 1935. Frank Schiffman transformed the theater from a vaudeville house hosting acts like Al Jolson and the Marx Brothers into an epicenter for black artists performing for largely black audiences in an era of de facto cultural segregation. During the 1930s and 40s, the elder Schiffman provided early exposure to countless African-American luminaries, including Count Basie, Billie Holiday, and Duke Ellington. Frank Schiffman was respected and feared for his fierce competitiveness. In Harlem show business circles, he was God, a five-foot-nine-inch, white, Jewish, balding, bespeckled deity, music writer Ted Fox observed in his 1983 book, Showtime at the Apollo. Bobby Schiffman, the younger of his two sons, was more affable and easygoing, but lacked none of his father's drive or ambition. I don't think Bobby Schiffman gets enough credit for being a great impresario, Fox said in a phone interview. Through enormous changes in musical tastes, styles, and culture in general, he kept the theater going, doing 31 shows a week, seven days a week, year after year for decades, in a way that no other theater has ever been able to do. His father had run the theater along the old vaudeville model as a venue for variety shows. Frank was old school, Howard Schiffman said of his grandfather in a phone interview. He was like Ed Sullivan. He thought that there should be a juggler and an animal act on every show. Faced with keeping the lights on at a compact 1,500-seat theater with little financial cushion, Bobby Schiffman made it his business to find out what the people in the streets were listening to, Fox said. He would go into the bars and see what was on the jukebox, he added. He would talk to local DJs and record store owners to find out what was coming out and book them while they were still unknown. Winners of the theater's famous and long-running Wednesday amateur night during Mr. Schiffman's tenure included Gladys Knight, Ronnie Spector, Jimi Hendrix, and the Jackson Five. By providing support and exposure, he nurtured young stars before they became superstars, Fox said, and would later appeal to them to appear, at great financial sacrifice, to come back and play for the people who made them. During Mr. Schiffman's tenure as manager, the Apollo served not only as a launching pad to fame, but also, eventually, as a symbol of arrival to generations of performers. It was the pinnacle, Motown star Smokey Robinson once said. It was the most important theater in the world. Once you could say you had played the Apollo, you could get in any door anywhere. The Apollo's reputation went global, thanks in part to hit live recordings made there by stars like James Brown an Apollo regular who recorded the landmark album Live at the Apollo in October 1962. Widely regarded as one of the great live albums, it hit number six on the Billboard chart in 1963 and remained in the top ten for 39 weeks. Robert Lee Schiffman was born February 12, 1929 in Manhattan, the youngest of Frank and Lee Schiffman's three children. He grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, a suburb north of the city where he attended A.B. Davis High School with Dick Clark, 
the future host of American Bandstand. After earning a bachelor's degree in business from New York University, Mr. Schiffman spent the early 1950s working his way up the ladder at the Apollo. He did every terrible job in the place, from cleaning bathrooms to taking tickets, his son said. During Mr. Schiffman's heyday at the Apollo in the 1960s, his office functioned as a nerve center for black culture. Local politicians like Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr. and sports stars like Muhammad Ali would drop by for a chat. By the 1970s, however, Harlem was being increasingly buffeted by drugs, crime, and economic decline, and the live music business was changing. With color barriers and music breaking down, the Apollo was unable to maintain its lure for artists who had become arena-packing juggernauts. Bobby Schiffman finally shuttered the theater in 1976. It was declared a state and city landmark in 1983, and in 1991, it was taken over by the Apollo Theater Foundation, a nonprofit organization. Mr. Schiffman later oversaw the Westchester Premier Theater in Terrytown, New York, before retiring to Florida. In addition to his son, from his marriage to Joan Landy, which ended in divorce in 1973, he leaves his fourth wife, Betsy Rothman Schiffman, his stepsons from that marriage, Barry and Michael Rothman, six grandchildren, and two great-grandsons. His marriages to Renee Levy and Rusty Donner also ended in divorce. While the Apollo became famous for its stars and spectacle, Mr. Schiffman never forgot its unique role as a locus for Harlem life. We were in the business of pleasing the black community, he said in an interview for the book Showtime at the Apollo. If white folks came as an ancillary benefit, that was fine. But the basic model was to bring the people of the community entertainment they wanted at a price they could afford to pay. That was the obituary titled Bobby Schiffman, 94, The Apollo Theater's Renowned Guiding Force. It appeared in the Boston Globe newspaper on Tuesday, September 19, 2023, and was written by Alex Williams. My next reading is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. The title is Fearless Fund Swept Up in Attack on Diversity. It was written by Mirtha Donestorg and published September 18, 2023. The renewed conservative push to dismantle affirmative action in corporate America made an Atlanta-based and black woman-founded venture capital firm one of its first targets. But in the weeks since the lawsuit alleging racial discrimination by Fearless Fund was filed in federal court, the assault on corporate diversity efforts has only grown. The nonprofit American Alliance for Equal Rights followed its lawsuit against a Fearless Fund grant program for black women by suing two law firms over their diversity fellowships. Similar conservative organizations have targeted major corporations like McDonald's, Target, and Progressive, hoping to chip away at programs intended to help African Americans and other minorities overcome entrenched racial inequality. We are inaugural defendants in one of the most defining lawsuits of our time, said Arian Simone, CEO and co-founder of Fearless Fund, during a speech in August at the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. The maneuvering follows the June decision by the U.S. Supreme Court striking down affirmative action in college admissions. Edward Bloom, a conservative activist in the trenches of that case, leads the Texas-based alliance. The lawsuits by Bloom's network and other groups are widely seen as an attack on affirmative action programs in business and are starting to have a chilling effect. 
You take a case like this very seriously because it seems to strip away fundamental legal protections that black and brown people have in this country. Alfonso David, president and CEO of Global Black Economic Forum and one of the lead lawyers for Fearless in this case told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. At least one of the alliance lawsuits has already had its intended effect. Morrison Forrester was one of the law firms in the group's legal crosshairs over their diversity fellowship. In response, the firm changed the eligibility criteria of their program. In July, 13 Republican state attorneys general sent a letter to CEOs of the 100 biggest U.S. companies cautioning them to refrain from discriminating on the basis of race, whether under the label of diversity, equity, and inclusion or otherwise. Five Republican attorney generals sent a similar warning to the nation's top 100 law firms the next month. Organizations are starting to change diversity-focused programs to avoid lawsuits. The law firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher changed the language for a diversity and inclusion scholarship according to Bloomberg Law. Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher is one of the lead firms defending Fearless Fund. Business leaders around the country are now thinking about how to protect their companies. The lawsuits were hot topics during panels at the Fortune Impact Initiative Conference, a gathering of senior leaders from Fortune 1000 companies held in Buckhead last week. Former two-time Democratic nominee for governor Stacey Abrams said the goal of these lawsuits is to use fear around being caught in a legal and political fight to change how companies act. Lawsuits are designed not for victory, but for a chilling effect, she said at the conference. The chilling effect is when you decide to unilaterally disarm for fear of being attacked. During the conference, David from the Global Black Economic Forum announced his group has convened a new council of 13 civil rights organizations to fight back against the conservative challenges, including the U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, the NAACP, and the Urban League. The new group, the Council for Economic Opportunity and Social Justice, will work collaboratively because we cannot sit back while we see a rollback of our rights and our protections, he said. The lawsuit against Fearless Fund challenges a program awarding $20,000 small business grants to black women, alleging it violates the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Bloom said the Fearless Drivers Grant Contest is racially exclusive, thus violating our nation's civil rights laws. Fearless Fund has not been chilled. The grant program at the center of Alliance's lawsuit is continuing business as usual, accepting applications through the end of September. In a recent legal filing, the fund alleges that the alliance lacks standing to file the lawsuit and the three anonymous white and Asian women business owners the alliance says it represents can't show how they are harmed by not being eligible for the grant. In this response to fearless claims, the alliance noted the VC firm changed some of the fine print for the grant program after it was sued. Fearless had already disclosed taking out the word contract, asserting it was just to represent the grant program more accurately as a charitable gift. But the alliance alleges the changed language is to get around one of its central claims. On September 26th, both sides will argue their cases as U.S. District Court Judge Thomas Thrash Jr. weighs whether to preliminarily bar Fearless from enforcing the racial eligibility criteria for the grant program. Before the Alliance's lawsuit, Fearless was a relatively small player in the venture capital world. It raised a $25 million Fund 1 and has raised at least $16 million for its Fund 2, according to a Securities and Exchange Commission filing from May. 
Over the past four years, the firm has made investments in more than 40 companies founded by black, Latina, and Asian women. But that's a small drop in the bucket of venture capital funding nationally, which has totaled more than $86 billion in 2023 alone. So far this year, less than 1% of that sum has gone to black-founded companies. Historically, black women entrepreneurs receive a fraction of what other founders get. Between 2009 and 2017, only 0.0006% of venture capital funding went to businesses started by black women, according to nonprofit advocacy group Digital Undivided. That was the article, Fearless Fund Swept Up in Attack on Diversity. It was written by Mirtha Donastorg and published September 18, 2023, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. My next story is about the St. Louis, Missouri area, but I found it in the Capital Gazette of Annapolis, Maryland. It was published September 25, 2023, and the title is Victims of Secret Cold War Era Spring Seek Compensation. It was written by Jim Salter, and this was originally an Associated Press story. Ben Phillips' childhood memories include basketball games with friends and neighbors gathering in the summer shade at their St. Louis housing complex. He also remembers watching men in protective suits scurrying on the roofs of high-rise buildings as a dense material poured into the air. I remember the mist, said Phillips, now 73. I remember what we thought was smoke rising out of the chimneys. Then there were machines on top of the buildings that were spewing this mist. As Congress considers payments to victims of Cold War-era nuclear contamination in the St. Louis region, people who were targeted for secret government testing from that same time period believe they're due compensation too. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Army used blowers on top of buildings and in the backs of station wagons to spray a potential carcinogen into the air surrounding a St. Louis housing project where most residents were black. The government contends the zinc-cadmium sulfide sprayed to simulate what would happen in a biological weapons attack was harmless. Phillips and Chester Deans disagree. The men who grew up at the Pruitt-Igoe housing complex, capital P-R-U-I-T-T-I-G-O-E, are now leading the charge seeking compensation and further health studies that could determine whether the secretive testing contributed to various illnesses or premature deaths that some Pruitt-Igo residents later suffered. We were experimented on, Phillips said. That was a plan. It wasn't an accident. The new push comes as federal lawmakers are weighing compensation for people claiming harm from other government actions and inactions during the Cold War. The Associated Press reported in July that the government and companies responsible for nuclear bomb production and atomic waste storage sites in and near St. Louis were aware of health risks, spills, and other problems, but often ignored them. Many believe the nuclear waste was responsible for the deaths of loved ones and ongoing health problems. The Associated Press report, part of a collaboration with the Missouri Independent and the nonprofit newsroom Muckrock, examined documents obtained by outside researchers through the Freedom of Information Act. Republican U.S. Senator Josh Hawley introduced legislation soon after the news reports calling for expansion of an existing compensation program for exposure victims. The Senate endorsed the amendment. While the House has yet to vote, President Joe Biden said last month that he was prepared to help in terms of making sure that those folks are taken care of. Former residents of Pruitt-Igoe also say they should be taken care of. 
Phillips and Deans, 75, are co-founders of FACTS, P-H-A-C-T-S, which stands for Pruitt-Igo Historical Accounting, Compensation, and Truth-Seeking. Their attorney, Elkin Kistner, said it would be appropriate and necessary for Hawley's proposal to be widened to include former Pruitt-Igo residents. The government released documents in 1994 revealing details about the spraying. St. Louis wasn't alone in being subjected to secretive Cold War-era testing. Spraying occurred in nearly three dozen other locations. There were other types of secret testing. In a 2017 book, St. Louis sociologist Lisa Martino-Taylor cited documents obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request to detail how pregnant women in several cities were given doses of radioactive iron during prenatal visits to determine how much was absorbed into the blood of the mothers and babies. The government also created radiation fields inside buildings, including a California high school. The area of the testing in St. Louis was described in Army documents as a densely populated slum district. About three-quarters of the residents were black. We were living in so-called poverty, Dean said. That's why they did it. They have been experimenting on those living on the edge since I've known America. And of course they could get away with it because they didn't tell anyone. Pruitt-Igo was built in the 1950s with the promise of a new and better life for lower-income residents. The project failed and was demolished in the 1970s. Despite the ultimate demise, Deans and Phillips said that through their youth, Pruitt-Igo was a welcoming place. Yet over the years, both men cited countless premature deaths and unusual illnesses among relatives and friends who once lived at Pruitt-Igo. Phillips' mother died of cancer, and a sister had convulsions that puzzled her doctors, he said. Phillips lost hearing in one ear due to a benign tumor. Dean's brother battled through health problems for years and died of heart failure. A government study found that in a worst-case scenario, repeated exposure to zinc-cadmium sulfide could cause kidney and bone toxicity and lung cancer. Yet, the Army contends that there is no evidence anyone in St. Louis was harmed. That was the article titled, Victims of Secret Cold War Era Spraying Seek Compensation. It was written by Jim Salter, and it appeared in the Capital Gazette newspaper of Annapolis, Maryland, on Monday, September 25th, 2023. My next reading is an opinion piece that stresses the case against reparations. It's from the Morning Call newspaper of Allentown, Pennsylvania, and its title is, If We Pay Reparations for Slavery, Where Does It End? It was written by George Nation III. Paying reparations for slavery has been discussed recently at both the state and federal levels. For example, bills have been introduced in the United States House and Senate that would create a commission to consider reparations for slavery. Should reparations be paid for slavery? Those enslaved in the U.S. were purchased in Africa from African slave traders and were forced to suffer the horrific Middle Passage. The survivors often arriving first in the Caribbean before being taken to America. Here they were treated as property and forced to work for generations, from 1619 to 1865, without compensation. The benefit of their labor went directly to enslavers and indirectly to many non-enslavers. Does the government, because it supported and enforced enslavement, owe lost wages as well as damages for pain, suffering, and other non-economic harm, to the descendants of those who were enslaved.
Have those not descended from enslaved people or enslavers received indirect benefits from slavery that constitute their debt for slavery? One concern with paying reparations is that payment will be made by people who never owned slaves and received by people who were never enslaved. All of the enslavers and all of the enslaved are dead. Does this mean that reparations are an unfair burden to the payers and a windfall to the recipients? Three questions are relevant. Does America owe a debt for slavery? If yes, is this a debt we should attempt to repay? And finally, if so, how should this debt be repaid? The third question is complicated. Should direct or indirect payment be made? How much should be paid? Should there be an income slash wealth limit for recipients? How should we account for payments already made? The cost of the Civil War and various government programs designed to help formerly enslaved people and their descendants. Should we attempt to value the asset of U.S. citizenship received by the descendants of slaves? Should all African Americans be eligible or only descendants of slaves? The second question focuses on whether paying reparations, if a debt is owed, will move us forward or backward. Treating people differently on the basis of race is what got us into this problem, and reparations will continue that pernicious practice. The focus here is on the first question. Does the debt incurred due to slavery survive today? Do today's citizens owe a debt for something that ended more than 150 years ago? Is the racial wealth gap a legacy of slavery, and if so, is it sufficient to support reparations? Do white people still today benefit from slavery? Slavery benefited enslavers, but it and the racial discrimination that followed harmed the American economy by taking productive African-American workers out of the market and especially harmed the South by discouraging investment in industry and transportation. Following the Civil War, there was no U.S. cotton on par with, for example, U.S. steel or standard oil. The ill-gotten gains of the enslavers were largely consumed by worthless Confederate war bonds and the loss of enslaved labor. After the war, the U.S. cotton industry was devastated. It seems unlikely that the wealth created by slavery found its way to current generations. Should generations be paid not because ancestors were enslaved, but for post-slavery racial discrimination that metastasized from the cancer of slavery? Many other Americans have also been subject to government-supported discrimination. For example, Native Americans, women, certain religious groups, and certain races slash ethnicities. Would it be wrong to exclude these groups from any attempt to redress past discriminatory practices? It wasn't only black people who were enslaved in America. A significant number of Native Americans and some white people were also enslaved. However, the largest number of enslaved persons were black. While most Americans, even at slavery's peak, did not own slaves, Virtually everyone was aware of slavery and the lies told regarding black people and Native Americans to justify slavery. Does the close nexus between slavery and racial discrimination such as Jim Crow, redlining, and the denial of various government benefits explain today's unequal wealth distribution and incarceration rates? Are descendants of enslaved people still denied an equal opportunity to achieve the American dream or does equal opportunity exist today? Have we denied equal opportunity to others as well? All women for much of history were treated as property, first of their fathers, then their husbands with no legal identity or rights of their own. The lies regarding women were also ubiquitous. 
Since no one alive today was ever enslaved, and because many Americans have suffered discrimination, I advocate for using available public funds to help all in need, regardless of race or identity. That was the opinion piece. If we pay reparations for slavery, where does it end? It appeared in the Morning Call newspaper of Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was published September 19th, 2023, and it was written by George Nation III, who is a professor of law and business at Lehigh University. My next reading is from Time Magazine and its Time.com website. The title is How a Court Answered a Forgotten Question of Slavery's Legacy. It was written by Erica Coleman and published September 11, 2017. In recent weeks, as Americans across the country have engaged in debates about how the Civil War period is publicly commemorated, a quieter battle over a related question was finally put to rest. On August 30, 2017, Senior United States District Judge Thomas F. Hogan answered an old question about Cherokee freedmen, the descendants of people who were enslaved by members of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, who have been fighting for their tribal citizenship since the early 1980s. In the case of the Cherokee Nation versus Nash et al., Judge Hogan looked at whether an 1866 treaty, which stated that people who had been emancipated by the Cherokee would, along with their descendants, have all the rights of native Cherokees, ensured continuing citizenship rights for the people whose ancestors were freedmen included on the Dawes Roll, the U.S. government's official list of tribal citizens, between 1898 and 1914. In the case, the Cherokee Nation had held that their revised constitution, which had expelled the freedmen from the tribe in 1983 on the premise that they were not blood Cherokee, though many of them are of black Cherokee ancestry, held more legal weight than the 1866 treaty. However, the judge ruled that the Constitution does not negate the Freedmen's Treaty rights granted to their forebearers at the end of the Civil War. In other words, Cherokee Freedmen are Cherokee. While the case of the Cherokee Freedmen has continually made headlines during the past decade, the story of American Indians as enslaved people and slave owners remains a relatively unknown aspect of American history. Slavery was a reality of indigenous life in the Americas prior to the arrival of Africans and Europeans. As Christina Snyder explains in her book, Slavery in Indian Country, The Changing Face of Captivity in Early America, captivity was widespread and it took many forms. But as Snyder explains in tracing the history of southern Indian captivity to the pre-Columbian era, the advent of European colonialism meant that Indians found themselves thrust into a global economy underscored by a racialized system of human trafficking for profit. Slavery was not peculiar to indigenous societies, where captives were prisoners of war obtained from enemy tribes, Snyder notes. But the commodified form that slavery took in the antebellum South and elsewhere in the colonial Americas was new. With the introduction of a rigid slave system to North America, which exploited both Indian and African bodies as human commodity, indigenous people became part of that economy on both sides of the transaction. For example, in his book, The Westo Indians, Slave Traders of the Early Colonial South, Aaron E. Brown describes how the Westo Indians, capital W-E-S-T-O, 
From the Northeast captured enemy tribes to trade to the English Virginians for guns, ammunition, metal tools, and other goods. And in the West, as highlighted by the scholar Andreas Resendez in his book The Other Slavery, the buying and selling of Indians, even though it was illegal and California entered the Union as a free state, was common practice in the years after the Mexican-American War. While the myth that African slavery replaced Indian slavery continues to persist in our society, Indian slavery never went away, contends Resendez, but rather coexisted with African slavery from the 16th all the way through to the late 19th century. The five tribes, whose original homeland was located in the southern interior, in an area bounded by the Cumberland River to the north and the Mississippi Valley to the west, and who included the Cherokee, adopted racialized chattel slavery in the late 18th century. Southern whites urged them to participate in the enslaving of black people as a part of the federal government's Indian civilization effort, hence the name the Five Civilized Tribes. The Cherokee Nation exceeded their counterparts in embracing white southern slave culture and profited the most from slave ownership. By 1809, there were 600 enslaved blacks living in the Cherokee Nation. By 1835, the number increased to 1,600. In her book, The House on Diamond Hill, a Cherokee plantation story, Taya Miles tells the intriguing story of the Chief Van House, located on a vast plantation in northeast Georgia. It was named Diamond Hill in 1801 by its owner, James Van, the wealthiest and reportedly cruelest of the Cherokee slave owners who owned at least 100 slaves. Diamond Hill later fell into disarray as a consequence of Andrew Jackson's forced Indian removal, but the Van family continued to prosper as slavery in the Indian Territory, now the state of Oklahoma, proved far more profitable to the tribes than it had been in the southeast. In 1860, there were 4,000 enslaved blacks living in the Cherokee Nation alone. Although the Cherokee Nation had resolved to remain neutral at the outset of the Civil War in April 1861, by October they entered into a treaty to join the Confederate cause. The reason, they argued in the document, was that the Cherokee people had its origins in the South. Its institutions are similar to those of the southern states and their interests identical with theirs. In addition, they painted the war as one of northern cupidity and fanaticism against the institution of African servitude, against the commercial freedom of the South and against the political freedom of the states. But by the following fall, with the nation sorely divided as thousands of Cherokee fled to Union lines, the Cherokee Council abrogated its treaty alliance with the Confederacy. On February 19, 1863, shortly after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, the Cherokee Nation issued an act providing for the abolition of slavery in the Cherokee Nation, which called for the immediate emancipation of all slaves in the Cherokee Nation. In a treaty ratified on July 27, 1866, the Cherokee Nation declared that those freedmen and their descendants shall have all the rights of native Cherokees. It is these words the freedmen held on to during their long legal battle. Marilyn Van, a descendant of the James Van family and one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, expressed the idea to National Public Radio after the decision was issued. All we ever wanted, she said, was the rights promised us. That was the article, How a Court Answered a Forgotten Question of Slavery's Legacy. It appeared in Time Magazine's Time.com website on September 11, 2017, 
and was written by Erica L. Coleman. My next reading is related to the previous story, but it's about Africans who resisted being enslaved in the Cherokee Nation. The title of this article is The Slave Revolt of 1842, When Dozens Fled Cherokee Nation. This appeared in the Black Wall Street Times, and it's the Black W-A-L-L-S-T-T-I-M-E-S dot com website. It was written by Dion Osborne, and it was published August 8th, 2023. Paula Bowen was shocked when she came across a passage about an 1842 Cherokee slave revolt in Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, while doing research for her master's degree at Arizona State University a few years ago. The story of over two dozen black people locking their Cherokee Nation enslavers in their rooms and journeying south toward freedom in Mexico remains an obscure footnote within the history of black resistance. I said, wow, we had a slave revolt in 1842? Bowen, an Oklahoma history teacher, told the Black Wall Street Times, it's opened up all these other questions I had about our history in Oklahoma. It's not in the books. Since then, she's embarked on a journey to have the history of one of the largest slave rebellions illuminated on a global stage with help from the National Park Service. Unlike tribal nations elsewhere on Turtle Island, the five tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek, that were forced on a death march to land that would become present-day Oklahoma, engaged in the practice of human slavery. The Oklahoma Historical Society contains a small paragraph describing the slave revolt of 1842 when over two dozen enslaved people of the Cherokee Nation, many from the Joseph Van Plantation, fled Weber's Falls seeking freedom in Mexico. While immigrants today make the arduous journey through the Rio Grande River seeking safety and security in the U.S., the brave black souls of the Cherokee Nation sought freedom on the other side. On November 15, 1842, Enslaved people who had worked as farm laborers, maids, and servants had enough of their forced servitude. In a largely peaceful act of resistance, they locked their enslavers in their rooms and took guns, ammunitions, food, and horses as they made their way south. At daybreak, the group which included men, women, and children headed toward Mexico, where slavery was illegal. In the Creek Nation, the Cherokee slaves were joined by Creek slaves, bringing the group total to more than 35. The fugitives fought off and killed a couple of slave hunters in the Choctaw Nation. Dozens of men within the Cherokee militia were sent by Captain John Drew to capture them, an act authorized by the Cherokee National Council. At least five of the rebels were executed, with the rest forced to continue their forced labor. In retaliation for the slave revolt, the Cherokee Nation later ordered all free black people out of the nation, the Cherokees had the largest number of enslaved people of any tribal nation of roughly 4,600. It took a United States treaty signed with each nation after they partly sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War to end slavery there. Black freedmen of the five tribes continue to fight for their equal rights and citizenship. In recent years, the Cherokee Nation has become the only nation to grant full citizenship and benefits to black freedmen descendants. The Cherokee Nation has made efforts to reconcile with their sideline relatives in recent years through museum exhibits and other initiatives. Yet the history of the 1842 slave revolt is rarely mentioned, if ever. Meanwhile, Paula Bowen is continuing her efforts to have this history told. 
She's working with the National Park Service to have the history of the revolt included through legislation passed in 1998. National Park Service established a program called the National Underground Railroad Network. It memorializes the history of resistance to slavery and oppression. I said, "Well, this is the Underground Railroad. Why isn't this talked about?" Bowen told the Black Wall Street Times, "Because it broadens the ideology of slavery. It expands the story." Moving forward, Bowen is working on completing the requirements to validate her findings in order to have this history included in the larger program. Our history is American history. You can't confine it. You can't contain it. It is what it is, and it will be taught whether it is in a classroom or on TikTok. The truth can't be stopped. You can try to contain it by enacting laws, but you can only do so much because the world is open. That was the article, "The Slave Revolt of 1842," when dozens fled Cherokee Nation. It was written by Dion Osborne and published August 8, 2023, in the Black Wall Street Times. That was the second of two readings about slavery in the Cherokee Nation. My next reading is an opinion piece from the New York Times and its NewYorkTimes.com website. The title is. The Forgotten Radicalism of the March on Washington. It was published August twenty ninth, twenty twenty three, and was written by Jamel Bowie. As remembered and commemorated by most Americans, the nineteen sixty three March on Washington, its sixtieth anniversary fell on Monday, August twenty eighth, represents the essence of the civil rights movement defined in our national mythology as a colorblind demand for neutrality and fairness in the face of discrimination embodied in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream that his four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character less well remembered in our collective memory at least Is the fact that both the march and King's speech were organized around much more than opposition to anti-black discrimination. It was officially known as the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, with a far more expansive vision for society than formal equality under the law. The march wasn't a demand for a more inclusive arrangement under the umbrella of post-war American liberalism, as it might seem today. It was a demand for something more. For a social democracy of equals, grounded in the long Black American struggle to realize the promises of the Declaration of Independence and the potential of Reconstruction, consider the ten-point list of demands issued by the organizers of the march. They wanted comprehensive and effective civil rights legislation to guarantee all Americans access to all public accommodations, decent housing, adequate and integrated education, and the right to vote. They wanted a massive federal program to train and place all unemployed workers, Negro and white, on meaningful and dignified jobs at decent wages. They wanted a national minimum wage act that will give all Americans a decent standard of living. They wanted federal legislation to protect workers from exploitation and a federal government that brought its full power to bear on discrimination and disenfranchisement. Or better yet, consider the labor leader. A. Philip Randolph's opening speech to the assembled marchers: "We want a free democratic society dedicated to the political, economic, and social advancement of man along moral lines," said Randolph. 
for whom the 1963 March on Washington was the fulfillment of a call made more than two decades earlier in the midst of World War II to let the Negro masses speak with 10,000 Negroes strong, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue in the capital of the nation. The sanctity of private property takes second place to the sanctity of the human personality, Randolph said in his speech. It falls to the Negro to reassert this proper priority of values because our ancestors were transformed from human personalities into private property. We know, he continued, that we cannot expect the realization of our aspirations through the same old anti-democratic social institutions and philosophies that have all along frustrated our aspirations. The chief organizer of the March on Washington, Bayard Rustin, had a complicated relationship with his allies in the movement. His youthful communism, wartime objection to the draft, and unapologetic sexuality, Rustin was openly gay, rendered him an outsider among civil rights leaders and a target for rivals and opponents. Nonetheless, he spoke on the day of the event, delivering the demands of the march directly to the viewing public and gave a clear account of the social democratic vision behind the march in a memo written for others in the movement. We believe that the Negro community has an especially important role to play. For the dynamic that has motivated Negroes to withstand with courage and dignity the intimidation and violence they have endured in their own struggle against racism in all its forms may now be the catalyst which mobilizes all workers behind demands for a broad and fundamental program of economic justice. Much, if not most, of the civil rights movement has been subsumed into the mythology of Martin Luther King, Jr. That is, it has been subsumed into the image of a king who stands for little else than colorblindness, nonviolence, and moral suasion. That doesn't represent the full king, of course, and in the same way, that doesn't represent the march on Washington as it was actually conceived and carried out. The real march through the paramount influences of Randolph, Rustin, and others was an expression of the democratic and egalitarian aspirations of the black freedom struggle as voiced and articulated throughout the previous decades by activists, intellectuals, and laborers alike. As the liberal journalist Murray Kempton wrote of the event for the New Republic, no expression one-tenth so radical has ever been seen or heard by so many Americans. Living now, as we do, in a period of anti-democratic re-entrenchment at the hands of powerful reactionaries, it is as important as ever to remember and commemorate the radicalism of both the March on Washington and the entire civil rights movement, not just as inspiration, but as a reminder that the struggle for democratic freedom, whether we look to the enslaved Americans who claimed the Declaration of Independence as their own, or their descendants who stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial nearly two centuries later, has always been a struggle against the privileges of caste and class. That was the opinion piece titled, The Forgotten Radicalism of the March on Washington. It was written by Jamel Bowie, capital J-A-M-E-L-L-E, capital B-O-U-I-E. This appeared August 29, 2023, in the New York Times website of nytimes.com. I'm going to wrap up today's program with a poetry review from Harvard Review Magazine and its harvardreview.org website. 
The title is Unshuttered by Patricia Smith, reviewed by Roni Bopla, capital R-H-O-N-Y, capital B-H-O-P-L-A. Patricia Smith's Unshuttered is an extraordinary work that elucidates black consciousness in the form of dramatic monologue. The collection is a sequence of enumerated poems featured alongside found 19th century photographs of African Americans. Reading Smith's work, we are swept into a world of interiority full of desire, love, joy, confusion, despair, anger, and resilience. In Unshuttered, a cacophony of voices responds to colonialist narratives about African Americans of the post-emancipation period. Though we never truly get to know the people in the portraits, we meet them through the conjectural lens of the present. In one photograph, a little boy with a benumbed expression looks into the distance. He appears to be alone in a clearing. On the facing page, 12 begins, Daddy left me with one souvenir, a mutt, a knotty mess of snaggled tooth and yap. That dog just hated me. I sneak up near his drooling trap. The quatrains of this poem describe the precarious life of the child. His anguish transforms with a shift of perspective as he matures. He attempts to understand parental love. While the reader is enchanted by the lyricism of this poem, Smith describes a type of love born of something sinister. I never knew that kind of fright and wondered what my daddy's lesson was. Why he left me a dog that loved to seek his fangs into my leg? Get used to him, Paul said. I think he must have meant to toughen me, to show me just how crazy close I'd always be to hate I couldn't turn to love. The man I am can see the truth in that, but now I wonder if I dreamed the mad dog real. He's gone from sight. He left the fear, nothing else. And was he black or white? This disjunctive ending and artful pauses result in a suspenseful conclusion. Smith's bold tone is familiar. Her previous collections, including Blood Dazzler and Incendiary Art, also contain voices of those who have been silenced in the face of violence. Similarly, the unmistakable intensity of her poems in Unshuttered heightens emotion. In 10, A Man in a Tie states, Step closer to me and see. I have not a thing to prove. I am a cultured man, and every curious eye that turns my way clings to privilege and chisel. In a litany of directives, the speaker enacts the minimization of African racial identity. Smith's depiction of this character's contradictions, defensiveness, and even abhorrence serve as a critique of anti-blackness. Throughout the collection, Smith uses stachic and stanzaic forms as well as traditional sonnets that leave the reader breathless in wonder. Eleven is a stachic poem in the voice of a woman who is standing next to a seated man named Jim. She says he works until he weeps, claims to love, me, more of himself, than he knew he owned. Within this admission of delicate erotic pleasure is her tireless work. I give him this square body, nights of my voice in his hair, I give growl to a task. I slop the pigs, pound nails flat, and live muscled and spent next to my man under a sun. 
These poems demonstrate the startling power of a dramatic monologue. Unique to this collection is the graceful interplay between text and image, and the title Unshuttered dismantles the power of the photographer's gaze. In 24, the speaker directly addresses the photographer. You're driven by your thirsting for a pawn. You covet me. And so I pose. You see a jeweled mute, a prize accessory, a sunrise you can latch onto your dawn. A word I held too close for you to hear you never heard. And now, my sir, it's late. The gilded me behind your gilded gate believes her skin. I warn you, don't come near. The gaze is directed at the young woman, but she confronts it and warns the one who gilded her. Like many other poems in the collection, this poem encourages an understanding of unmistakable feminist power. The lesson of Unshuttered may be what Smith describes in the preface as the inspiration behind this multimedia collection, the moment when the silence became a roar. That was a review of the book of poetry titled Unshuttered, it was written by Patricia Smith and reviewed by Ronnie Bopla. This appeared in harvardreview.org and was published September 26, 2023. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.